It's nice to have the warm welcome. I so appreciate all of you taking out the time to come out and, you know, to hear about my journey, to hear about my books, and, and certainly to hear about the new book. But the same as with every other event that I have done throughout the years, especially the last few years, when I hear that applause and it's all nice, what I always end up saying is, wow, you know what, let's just be real honest. That's not even for me. That's for the Reverend Curtis Black. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> because we know he precedes me. People don't even know who Kimberla Lawson Roby is. <laughs> you know, I meet people, and you know, if you're having a conversation, and you say, "Well, so what do you do?" You know, for a living, and you know, what kind of career do you have? And they'll say, "What's your name?" It's Kimberla, you know, Roby or Kimberla Lawson Roby. And then they, "Oh, okay." And then it's like, "Have you heard of the Reverend Curtis Black?" "Oh, yeah, yeah, I've definitely heard of the Reverend Curtis Black." And then it just goes from there and there. And I, you know, little did I realize that the Reverend Curtis Black was alive and well in every single city in the country. Um, that is what I think I'm most shocked about. And ironically, when I wrote my first book, Behind Closed Doors, I wrote the second book, Here and Now. Some of you have read some of my standalone titles. Then I moved on to Casting the First Stone. And because I had written about real-life issues in the first two books, and I had heard so much from readers saying they could relate to the storylines, and if they couldn't, they knew family members or friends who had gone through similar things that my um, characters had gone through. They were trying to maybe overcome some of those same obstacles and the struggles that they were dealing with. And so I said to my husband when it was time to submit a synopsis to my publisher for my third book, I wanted to continue that, that that's really where I wanted my career to be. But I want it to be something this time where it will still be real life social issues, but I want it to be where everyone will relate. They will know about it. It won't matter who they are, what walk of life they come from, what their financial status is, what color they, is. they are, man or woman, they will know this story. And so you can blame him because because he said, what about all of the issues that go on in some of our churches? And um, so I had never really thought much about that, had never considered it, but we certainly knew what was going on in Rockford, Illinois, you know, to say the least. And so from there, the Reverend Curtis Black was born. And of course, usually the question always comes up, who is he based on? And it's very hard for me, you can imagine, at home, because when I'm at my signings at home, people come up to me and I'm signing their books and, you know, we're laughing and talking and having a conversation. And then they kind of whisper, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> I know, you know, please keep up the good work. And it's like, no, you really don't because I'm not talking about any one individual. And Curtis really is a mixture. He's a compilation of many, many men that I've known or seen throughout the years because I've been in church my entire life. And, you know, to say that I've been going to church ever since I was born is one thing. But for me, I was going there when my mom was taking me there in her womb. You know, that's how long I've been, been going to church. And unfortunately, we saw everything under the sun um, um, from, I would say, probably if I go all the way back to, well, from when I was born. I mean, and I turned 50 last month. And so I bet you there have probably been seven to eight pastors. I mean, so there's every few years. And a lot of times they lasted that long because it took that long to get them out of there, you know. <laughs> so it probably would have been that many more. Um, sometimes there were babies being born, not with the wives, but, you know, babies were being born. Sometimes there were power struggles. Sometimes there were issues with money. And it was just one thing um, after another. And so they would end up out. And I'd seen and heard about so many other issues in church. Um, there was one incident at a church not that far from the one we had gone to for many 
many years up until the last three years ago. Um, but there was a church where the pastor had borrowed money from one of the deacons, who was kind of a friend of his as well, and he had kept saying he was going to pay him back, and he had not done it, and he kept asking him for his money. And so finally, he confronted him. The deacon confronted the pastor one last time on a Sunday morning, and they, it broke out into a physical fight. They literally had a fight on a Sunday morning before service, you know. So I could tell you a lot more. I'm not writing nearly what really, really goes on, you know. I mean, because it can get downright dirty, but it's also a downright shame to me, you know, that I could even stand here and say that, you know, those kinds of experiences are going on in the church with men and women of God who say they have been called into the ministry. Or, you know, if a man says, I've been called by God to preach, you know, but yet you're doing everything under the sun you're doing everything that goes against God's word. You're not even concerned about uplifting his word. You don't even have a fear of God and you don't have any respect for him. And so I think for me, I don't write it to ridicule the church because I love God. I honor him. I worship him. I believe in him. I trust in him with everything that I have in me. And as the years have gone on, as I've gotten older, that relationship with God has gone to a level that I never even thought imaginable. But the reason that I do write it and I want to continue to write is because I think that we have to hold people accountable um, when they are leading. You know, sometimes very innocent, very vulnerable people And at the same time, they're misleading them. You know, they're misleading them to the point where people sometimes walk away from church and they say they're never going back again, you know. And I think that's really where we run into the problem. And I think we have to really start to look at our leaders and say, you know, wait a minute. This is another human being who's standing in the pulpit and he or she falls short the same as we do. You know, we can't expect perfection from them. I do think that if you say you've been called by God to preach, you should hold yourself to a higher standard. Um, And we have to read the word for ourselves and I think work on our own personal relationships with God. And so that's really my reason, you know, hoping that you see these storylines. And of course, I know that a lot of you can relate to some of it, but that you just look at your own situation and, and know that you're, you know, at least making sure that you're on the right track and that you're in the right church because of church. Because for a long time, it was hard for me to want to leave the church that I had been in all my life because that's what I knew. That's what I was comfortable with. And I love the people. Some of those people that were the age of my parents, they were like parents to me and they treated me that way. Some of the older people that were like my grandparents and were friends with my grandparents, they treated me like a granddaughter. And I just didn't want to give up that. But then it got to a point where I thought, you know what, this isn't right. You know, I can't continue to sit here when on Sunday mornings I'm now focused on everything I've heard and all the truth that I know about this man versus what he's preaching. That's when you know there's, there's something wrong, you know. And then it becomes where am I really being fed, you know, am I really getting what I need to get. And now this is about me trying to continually do better every single day in my life so that my soul can be saved. And so we were just in prayer about it. And so finally, you know, three years ago, and we actually attended our current church two years before we joined. And I think it, for me, was the fear of, you know, when is that thing going to happen? You know, when is that news and that rumor going to come out? And, and it never did. And so, you know, thank God we have a pastor now who has integrity, who has a love for God, and isn't just concerned about what's going on inside of the church and with our congregation, but really does the outreach to help people who are less fortunate and, and doing things in the community. Um, so, but that's just to give you, you know, a little background on why I write it 
because I, I just think that it's important to share. Of course, I write, you know, fiction for entertainment, and I want you to enjoy it and to turn the pages, but hoping that you always see the message, you know, that if you commit a sin, if you treat people badly, you'll reap what you sow. You know, there has to be, you know, some sort of consequence um, when you're talking about that. Um, what I'm going to do is read an excerpt um, from the new book, um, which is a continuation in the Reverend Curtis Black series, but it actually centers on Alicia Black, um, Curtis's daughter. And so if you read about Alicia, then you know she is her father's daughter. She's you know, definitely got a lot of his ways and his character, and she makes some really terrible mistakes. And um, you know, for some of you who may not have read about his eldest daughter, um, when she first had her own story in The Best of Everything, she married a wonderful man named Philip. Um, Philip was the kind of man that any woman would have been proud to have. He loved her unconditionally. He was there for her. There was nothing more that really she could have asked for. But in the very, very early part of that book, there's a point where she's thinking, my gosh, he only makes only makes $80,000 a year. And she's used to the whole daughter of Reverend Curtis Black lifestyle. And so that just wasn't enough for her. And so she kind of ventures out. One thing leads to another, and she finds herself having an affair with a drug dealer named Levi. And so that goes on and on, and I don't want to ruin it for anyone who has not read the story, but it turns out terribly. And she ends up losing Philip. Of course, he is devastated when he finds out about it, and they move on. And so then in the next book, after that, be careful what you pray for, she married a man who was a pastor who of a megachurch who could give her everything by the name of J.T. Valentine, but he was worse than her father had ever been. <laughs> and so, you know, it just goes to show all the glamour and the money and the fame. There's a price that comes with that, you know, that you have to pay. You just can't have everything in this life and think that you're going to be okay. So she ended up getting out of that marriage, it ended, and she moved on. Well, then she really realized and truly appreciated the fact that she had had this first husband, Philip, who was this wonderful man. And so she wanted to get back with him. They started seeing each other. That's what they've done for the last few years. And he's never stopped loving her, but he couldn't trust her. Um, finally, last year in The Prodigal Son, if you read that, you know that Philip asked her to remarry him. Um, and so in the opening of this book, you learn, um, when I read, you'll learn that they are two months away from their wedding date. And so life is great, and it's wonderful. You already sound like, uh-uh-huh. So. <laughs> so I'm just going to give you a little bit of an idea of uh, where Philip and Alicia are now and, and what their lives are like and kind of what they're looking forward to in these next couple of months. Alicia's prayers had been answered. She and Philip were finally going to be married again. It had been six years since their first wedding, but in two months, she would walk down the aisle of her father's church and live happily ever after. She was fully committed to Philip this time around, and unlike before, she wouldn't betray him. She wouldn't sleep with another man behind his back. Just thinking about how selfish she'd been and how terribly she'd treated Philip still upset her, but thankfully, he finally trusted her again. There had been moments when, her, when Alicia hadn't been sure he ever would. Still, she'd gone out of her way doing all she could to show him just how much she loved and adored him and wanted to be his wife. From this point on, they would be together until death do us part, no matter what. Philip stood at the bedroom window of Alicia's condo, looking as handsome as ever, and Alicia smiled at him. He winked at her, but continued his phone conversation. He'd driven over last night and was now on the phone with her dad discussing church business. Philip had returned to his assistant pastor position at Deliverance Outreach in Mitchell, Illinois, which was the reason he and Alicia had purchased a home there. 
With all his church responsibilities, it was better for him to reside in the same city as his job so he could have quick access to the church and to any of the members who needed him. Philip had moved in a month ago, but it wouldn't be long before Alicia joined him as she now had a buyer for her Chicago area condo and would be closing on the cell in six weeks. She'd even begun moving some of her belongings out to the house in Mitchell. She would certainly miss Covington Park along with much of the culture and excitement that the Chicago area provided, but she also couldn't wait for her and Philip to live as husband and wife again. Things were going to be good between them. They would have a great life, and she thanked God for second chances. As a matter of fact, God had blessed her in such a tremendous way that she sometimes shed tears uncontrollably. Here she committed adultery against Philip, hurting him to the core, yet he'd found it in his heart to forgive her, and he'd never once stopped loving her. Then there was that awful second marriage she'd entered to with the likes of Pastor J.T. Valentine. The man had slept around with more women than Alicia could count, and the whole experience had been a nightmare. Still, God had delivered her from J.T. and his madness and allowed her to move on and forget about him. And if those blessings hadn't been enough, she was a a successful novelist who would be releasing her fourth book in a few months. She had such a wonderfully kind and loyal audience of readers, some of whom read her work because of her father's worldwide status, but the majority seemed to genuinely love her stories, and she was grateful for that. Philip ended his call. I'm going to get ready so I can head back home. Your dad and I and some of the other officers are meeting for lunch today. I need to get ready myself, she said. I'm meeting Melanie at noon so we can pick out our jewelry for the wedding. Melanie Richardson was Alicia's best friend, and she and her husband, Brad, who was Philip's best friend, were going to be their attendants. Alicia and Philip had considered having bridesmaids and groomsmen, too, but then decided they wanted to keep their ceremony as intimate and as meaningful as possible. That way, their day would be about them and the love they shared versus some massive impersonal affair. Oh, yeah, that's right, he said, strolling over to Alicia and hugging her. But more important, have I told you how beautiful you are today? As a matter of fact, you have, she said, kissing him. You're so good to me, and you make me so very happy. He squeezed her tighter. Not as happy as you make me. My life is finally complete, Philip. I'm glad to hear that, and although it took me a while, it took me a while to propose to you again, I hope you know that I never stopped loving you, not once. I know you didn't, and I never stopped loving you either, and I'm also sorry for, well, everything. I destroyed our marriage, and I will always be indebted to you for forgiving me the way you did. God forgives us all, he said, and we have to do the same with others. Sometimes, though, just because you've forgiven someone, it doesn't mean you can still be as close with them. You can still love them and be there for them if they need you, but forgiving someone and trusting them again are two different things. So I thank God that in our case, I was able to do both. You're a good person with a huge heart, she told him, and I love you with everything in me. I love you too, he said, kissing her. Alicia's yearning for Philip was strong and intense. It was the kind of yearning she couldn't act on or or ask him to satisfy. He talked a lot about how he couldn't wait to make love to her again, except Alicia wasn't handling the celibacy thing nearly as well as he was. She knew Philip was a minister and that he was serious about his faith, but Alicia had certain needs and desires. For her, kissing and cuddling only meant tons of torture, and she longed for their wedding day. It couldn't come fast enough, and she'd gone without for so many years that it was almost funny, especially since the sole reason she'd done so was because Philip had made it clear that he wouldn't have it any other way. He'd insisted that the only way things would work between them was if her love and respect for God were sincere. This, of course, meant living by the word and not having sex until they were married. Still, she'd be lying if she'd said that she was okay with it because she wasn't. She was 28, and she couldn't help the way she felt. 
Philip was only 10 years older, so she couldn't see how he was able to deal with this either, but he was, and he seemed to do it with ease. After Philip left, Alicia finished getting dressed and grabbed her large black leather tote from her bed. She disconnected her phone from its charger and saw that she had a new message. When she opened her mailbox, she scrolled through three different messages, some from a depart- one from a department store sale and a couple of other unimportant messages, but she swallowed hard when she saw the next one. The subject line said, hey, beautiful, and the sender's name was listed as Levi Cunningham. so she covered her mouth with her hand whispering out loud no this just can't be she took a deep breath and sat down on the leather chase in shock her her heart beat faster with every few seconds and although she was curious about the contents of the email she was afraid to open it what could Levi possibly want She hadn't heard from him in five years, not since he'd called her from prison. She'd wondered how, she'd wondered then how he was able to contact her and talk for as long as he wanted until she, until she learned that he'd gotten in pretty good with one of the correctional officers. He'd called her twice, once to let her know how much he still loved her, and the second time to tell her that her husband at the time, JT, was sleeping around on her and committing other unimaginable sins. Although now that Alicia thought about it, she, hadn't spoken to Le- she had spoken to Levi a third time, and that was when she told him she was going to do everything she could to get back with Philip. Levi had been disappointed, but it wasn't like he could offer her something else, not anything better, not with him still serving time for drug-related felony charges. Back then, he'd been sure he'd be out within a few months since his attorney had discovered new evidence to help exonerate him. Levi had also cooperated with the authorities, which likely meant he told on the right people. Still, as far as she knew, nothing had ever panned out in terms of his getting a new trial. Alicia stared at the phone, debating whether she should open the email. Her common sense begged her to delete it, but her heart pleaded for something different. And she knew why. After all these years, she'd never fully gotten over him. She'd buried her feelings and gone on with her life, but she'd never, ever forgotten their genuine chemistry. Their hearts had bonded naturally, and their deep emotional connection had been indescribable. It was the kind that only true soulmates could share, the kind she had never experienced with another man, not even Philip. Although, what harm could Levi do from a prison cell? Alicia debated no further. She opened the message and read it. Hey, beautiful. I'm sure I'm the last person you ever expected to hear from, right? I'm a little surprised myself, but I'm happy to say I finally got my new trial and I was released yesterday. I'm a free man, and although it hasn't been a full 24 hours yet, I've never felt better. I wanted to contact you as soon as my mom and my boy Daryl picked me up, but I decided I would spend some quality time with my mom last night first. She has been my rock through all of this, so I owed her that. But this morning, I woke up thinking about you and how much I missed you. So can you please email me back? I really want to see you. Oh, and I'm not sure whether you noticed or not, but after being locked down for all this time, I went back to school and learned a lot about commas and where to include them. Smile. Even better, I now have a bachelor's degree in business. Amazing what you can do online these days. And I can't thank God enough for it. I'm a totally different man. Anyway, I hope you respond. I can't wait to hear your voice. Talk to you soon. Levi. P.S. I never stopped loving you, sweetheart. Not for a second. 
Alicia didn't move. She couldn't have if she wanted to. Was it really true? Was Levi out of prison and living back in Mitchell, the same city she was returning to as well, the city where she and Philip were making their permanent home? This was all too much for Alicia to digest, but as she sat thinking, she realized something. Levi's email wasn't going to change anything. She loved Philip. She was marrying Philip in two months, and that was that. This was her reality. This was all of their reality. End of story. That's it. First chapter. <laughs> so um, just another, this is a very, very short section. I'm, I'm taking you um, a few chapters ahead, and a little bit of time has passed, and you know how Alicia's feeling, and she's already made up her mind. That's it, you know, no Levi, and, and that's kind of going to be that. She's going to move on with her life with Philip, and she's definitely, definitely not planning to make the same mistake twice. Alicia backed her white Mercedes out of the driveway, and though she knew Levi was standing in the doorway of the house staring at her, she never looked back at him. She drove away speechless and ashamed. It was as if she'd had some out-of-body experience and was in shock. She continued down the street, turned left, rolled to the stop sign, and broke into tears. Oh, my God, what have I done? What have I done? <laughs> you guys are awful. <laughs> You're probably thinking the same thing about me because I wrote it, though, huh? So... <laughs> She sniffled and wiped her face with a tissue that she pulled from her glove box and drove onto the main street. When she heard a loud hunk, she noticed her car was veering to the left and she swerved it back into the center of the lane. She was so distraught, all she could do was pray that she got home safely. How could she have betrayed Philip with Levi again? She didn't want to be this kind of person, a woman who allowed temptation to consume her, but there was something about Levi she couldn't resist. For one, she never should have agreed to meet with him. She never should have taken any of his phone calls, but deep down, she'd wanted to hear his voice. Truthfully, she'd needed to hear it, needed to see him, touch him, be held by him oh so gently, yet firmly. And yes, as wrong as it was, she desperately wanted to make love to him. She told herself that she wouldn't, but from the moment she laid eyes on him, she'd known it was going to happen. Her heart had begun racing. Her body had heated up, and her nerves had whirled out of control. She'd missed him just as much as he'd missed her, and as soon as he'd kissed her, she'd known she was in trouble. It had been obvious that things were going to escalate and that there was a chance she wouldn't be able to leave without sleeping with him if only she'd followed her first mind and not answered her phone when he called her again. By now, she'd be in Mitchell with Philip. And life would be great. She certainly wouldn't have made the biggest mistake of her life. It was as if she hadn't learned a thing from the last affair that she'd had with Levi. This time, she wasn't married to Philip. She was only engaged to him. But knowing that fact still wasn't making her feel any, any better about what she'd done. She'd fornicated, committed another sin, and gone behind Philip's, Philip's back with another man. Alicia continued down the street and onto the highway that would take her back to her condo. She debated whether... She, would go, she should still go to Mitchell after all, but she just couldn't face Philip. Not now. So she drove along in silence, weeping profusely at times and wondering how she was going to get beyond this. So that's Miss Alicia. <laughs> so um, 
this was a, you know, while I said I never wanted to write a series, and so even after casting the first stone, it was because I kept getting all of the requests from readers, you know, just like all of you sitting here, I'd go out to my events when I wrote my fourth book, It's a Thin Line, then I wrote my fifth book, A Taste of Reality, and readers were always very nice and kind to me, and they'd say, well, that was a nice book, but what is the Reverend Curtis Black up to? (laughs) And so my agent kind of said, you know, you have this obligation to give your readers what you're asking for, especially when you have such loyal readers like yours. Well, the same thing kind of happened with this. After these books were out about Alicia, and I've been writing about Curtis and Charlotte, and I've been writing about Matthew, you know, now and Dylan, and so that has continued. And so about three years ago, I was at an event, um, a library event, as a matter of fact, in Chicago, and there were a couple of book clubs there, and they were kind of going back and forth talking about the books, and so they said, you know, when are we ever going to see Levi again you know when are you going to write about Alicia and I said well you know there's really not a story because Levi's in prison you know not much can really go on and so you know we kind of have to move on to some other storylines and so one of the women smiled at me and she said yeah but you can get him out anytime you want to (laughs) (laughs) I thought wow you know what I guess I can so So I won't ever forget her. And so, as you can see, Levi is out and <laughs> and he's on a mission, you know. And so it'll, uh, you know, be interesting, I think, for you to just read to see how this goes. And so the question um, that you will have, the, the I think the biggest question that you'll have and what I'm just asking women and men now just throughout, you know, in your own lives, what maybe you've experienced, what you've seen with other people that you know. And in some cases, it may even be your situation right now, you know, should you should you be with a person who you connect with who you love more than life itself or should you be with a person that everybody expects you to be with I mean I think that's the question you're going to walk away with and that's the decision that Alicia will have to make Um, you know so many people may have been married for many years and they wake up unhappy every single day Um, but that's a choice you make sometimes it's just being responsible sometimes maybe you're doing it for kids and you know so because I've seen that so many times throughout the years I just thought this would be a great issue um, to just to just kind of open up and Alicia's a perfect character because that really is her situation she only stopped being with Levi because he went to prison Um, and so you know here we go you know so I hope that when you read it that you will enjoy it um, what I want to do now is just give you just a little bit of um, background on my career, what it's been like for me, and kind of how I started writing for some of you who don't know that. And then I will open it up to all of you. Um, you can ask any questions that you might have, make any comments, whether it's about the books, about publishing, about writing, about me, whatever it is, um, please feel free to ask it at that time. Um, I always start usually by saying um, that writing isn't a lifelong dream of mine. And I like to share that because a lot of times at my events, there's so many people who are readers that are actually writers. They're writing a book. They may have already written a book. Sometimes they're they're published, but maybe just trying to decide whether they're going to move forward with it. Um, And for me, I didn't start out wanting to do it. I never aspired to be a writer when I was a child. If you had asked me on maybe this particular week, I would have told you that I wanted to be an attorney. If you asked me next week, I would have said I want to be a doctor, and not just a doctor, but a gynecologist. Don't ask me why I wanted to be a gynecologist, but that was it. The next week, it might have been something else, and as I got older, I realized I was making all of those career decisions, um, deciding what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was making that based on how much money I could make, because all I knew was I wanted to make the most money that I possibly could. Um, It's also the reason when I go into 
colleges and universities, and even if I'm talking with high school age students, I tell them, please don't make the mistake that I made. Don't let money be the deciding factor when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life, with most of the rest of your life. Figure out what your passion is. You know, Learn and, and determine what your purpose is. Figure out why God placed you on this earth and what it is he wants you to do with your life. Every single person in this room has a special gift and ability. You have a certain calling on your life. Maybe you've ignored it. Maybe you've not paid a lot of attention to it. Some of you are living in that calling, but we all have something that we can do that that person next to you cannot do because God has given them something totally different. Um, but I ignored that. And when I was in high school and actually, you know, months before I was getting ready to graduate, I had heard it enough from elementary school, junior high, high school teachers saying, you have a gift for writing. You have a gift for storytelling. You should really follow through on that. I had heard it enough where I thought, well, maybe I should do a little research on it and check it out. But I just told you about my whole idea about money. I started looking at the salaries that writers made, and I thought, well, I'm definitely not going to be one of those. <laughs> you know, That's just not going to happen. And so I moved on and um, started out the community college and got a two-year degree in business and ultimately got my bachelor degree in business administration because I had seen where people who majored in business, people who worked in marketing and finance and all of the above, those were the people who really went on to have successful careers. Um, but I was never really happy. I never saw myself moving up the career ladder, not only the way I knew that I should be, but the way I deserved to be. You know, I was getting passed over for promotions, and it certainly wasn't because I wasn't getting uh, superior performance reviews and I didn't know my job. And so I was really frustrated, and I just would change jobs, change jobs every sometimes six to nine months and even a year. Um, even if I stayed longer than six to nine months, I was looking for another job, hoping that it would be different. And I finally realized it was because I really wasn't doing what it was I was supposed to be doing. And thought back to those elementary school teachers and on up and even my professors in college and thought maybe I should give writing a try. And so in 1995, um, that's when I started coming home, decided to write my first book behind closed doors and I would write every evening from 6 to 9, sometimes 10 o'clock at night. I'd write every weekend and holiday and I did that for seven months until the book was complete. Um, started in April of 95 and so by the end of that year I had my manuscript in hand and started submitting it to literary agents because after doing my research on how to get published what I learned was that publishers really want you to have that representative somebody who will just go out and find who they believe that they're looking for instead of them weeding through what they call unsolicited manuscripts because many of them get anywhere from two to three hundred of those in, in a given week. Um, and so I set out and compiled this list of agents who were representing some of the authors that I knew from Terry McMillan to Elin Harris to Eric Jerome Dickey, B.B. Moore Campbell, um, uh, Connie Briscoe, all of the authors that I was reading and enjoying at that time. Um, and unfortunately, I sent it to 14 of them. And I thought, I'll just sit back and, you know, wait, because surely they're all going to want it, and I'll just choose one and turn down the other 13. Um, and boy, was I in for a rude awakening, because I was rejected by every single one of them. I mean, the, the letters just poured in one after another. And so I was disappointed and, you know, of course discouraged, but I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to try one more thing, I at least have one more try that I can make. And that is to send it directly to editors at publishing houses. I knew they wanted me to have an agent but I couldn't find one and I figured I didn't have anything to lose and so I put together that listing of the editors who were publishing women's fiction and uh, particularly African-American women's fiction and I sent those query letters out and in some cases chapters 
and once again I was rejected from every single one and at that point that's when I wasn't just thinking about it but I really made up my mind to give up because I thought you know I'm not really that person to beat a dead horse I had tried it and I had worked hard at it and it was something I enjoyed I had even hoped to go on and write my second book but when I saw that it wasn't working I just thought it's really time to move on to something else and so my mom was hearing me say that and she said you know I understand that you are disappointed and you know this maybe didn't go the way that you wanted and I don't know anything about publishing she said but the fact that we passed around so many copies of your manuscript to women locally and they're saying that they couldn't put it down until they finished it, I think that means something, and you just shouldn't give up. Um, but that's the same mom who, when I was just a toddler, she was telling me I could do anything, you know? So was she really going to say, girl, that's an awful, awful book? Yeah, you definitely need to move on. My mother never would have said that to me. I just can't imagine it, because she always had me believing. Um, I, her saying that I always love to share with people, and to me it's kind of, you know, as they say, six one way, half a dozen another. She used to say, Every time to me growing up and even as an adult, don't ever walk around thinking you're better than anybody, but always know you're as good as the next person. And, you know, so it's always keeping that balance. Um, so I just knew she never would have discouraged me from, you know, trying to live out my dream. So finally, my husband said, well, you have this background in business. Why can't you just start your own company and publish the book yourself? And so that's how the whole idea of self-publishing came about. Um, I had never entertained that idea, didn't know anything about it, but um, the same as I purchased books and read and studied them on how to get published and writing a novel, I did that on how to self-publish. And so I read those books and that's when I realized it was possible. And so started to move forward, but when I started to look at the amount of money we would have to invest, that made me a little nervous because I kept thinking, what if this doesn't work? You know, if this doesn't work, um, you know, then we will have lost this money and it will be for nothing. And so I said to my husband, you know, I appreciate you encouraging me. And he had already said that he would borrow the money from his 401k account. If we had to take out a small personal loan, we would do that. But I said, what if it doesn't work? Have you really, really thought about that? And he said to me as simply as, if it doesn't work, then you'll just move on to something else. But do you want to go, say, 10 years down the road wondering if you could have maybe had some success with it. I just don't think you could live with that. Um, and so I did. I moved forward with it. In 1996, I started my company called Linux Press and went through that whole process. You know, when you self-publish, then you're wearing every hat. You're choosing the designer to, uh, for your jacket to hire, and the book has to be typeset, and it's got to be proofread and edited before you even get to that point. And then you have to get these proposals in from printers all over the country, trying to find a printer that's economical, one that will fit into your budget, but also one that will do a great job that won't be any different than the quality of a book that's being published by one of the New York publishers, um, so that the bookstores and libraries will even want to carry it for you. Um, and so I did all of that. And that's where I, I will say, you know, God always has a plan for us. I wish that I could have started writing a lot earlier, but my business background really made a difference for me when I started the business and then created that marketing plan to figure out how to get the book out on a national level versus just locally and regionally. And so I moved forward with it. And long story short, um, in the fall of 2000 or the fall of 1996 I should say um, the first 3,000 copies of the book came back and we'll never forget that day when the company the trucking company called and they said we just want to let you know that we have your 3,000 books we'll be delivering them tomorrow but mostly the reason we call you is because we don't help you take 3,000 books into your house so you need to have a lot of people there to help you with that 
Um, so when my husband came home from work, my mom got off, she came over, my brothers did the same thing. And so here we were taking these first 3,000 books in and storing them in our guest bedroom. And so it was a happy day. And I had always promised my mom that I would sign the first book for her. So it was just a great time and, and it was something to really be proud of. Um, but when my mom went home, my brothers went home, and then Will went to bed, um, you know, I couldn't help it. I think it was more feeling like a kid at Christmas. You know, I couldn't wait to go back down that hallway to the guest bedroom just to look. But when I went down the hallway and I turned on the light and I saw books everywhere, just all over to where you couldn't see anything else. And I thought, oh my God, I must have been completely out of my mind, you know. And then I was mad at Will thinking, why did I let him push me, you know, to do this, you know. You know, who's going to buy books when people don't even know who I am? Maybe a few people here in town, you know, family and friends, but that really, really frightened me. And, you know, but at that point, the books were there, the money had been spent, and the dates were set for not only the reception at home, the opening, but, you know, getting it out to other cities and so I did what I used to hear my mom and my grandmother say to me all the time you know honey when you find yourself you know kind of up against something and you see that obstacle you double your determination you know and you keep right on going and that's exactly what I did and as it turned out I ended up selling just over 10,000 copies the very first six months that the book was out and um, made the uh, Blackboard bestsellers list is what it was called at that time in Essence Magazine. And that was based on the first co- official month of sales, which, is, um, which was January 1997. And so I received a call from the committee. Um, at that time, it was compiled with a committee of women who own black bookstores in the country. And they would compile that listing from all the black bookstores and then put those numbers together. And I received a call from them one Saturday morning, and they said, we don't normally call authors when they make the bestsellers list because this is just something we do every month and it appears in the magazine about three months later and you know that's kind of that but we wanted to call you because um, Behind Closed Doors will be the only self-published book on the list and that's for fiction and non-fiction and so I really could see where things were starting to turn around and I took that information back to agents again and said look you know I'm sold at that time about 5,000 copies it's going to be in Essence Magazine and you know, they've got a million who subscribe and they've got five million readers by the time people share it. I just had this whole spiel, you know, in my letter. And thank God I found one agent who said yes. She wanted to take me on and she went on to sell my second book that I had not even written yet, um, Here and Now, um, which was just based on the sales of the first. And then, ironically, here in Baltimore, um, I ended up, um, we sold the first book to Black Classic Press here in Baltimore. And so things really, um, you know, turned around. It was a journey that I just never, ever imagined. Um, I knew that I wanted to publish, didn't know that I would have to start my own business. But now I'm glad that I did. And I say that because I think it forced me to learn the business much more than I would have had somebody just picked me up and kind of took me, took me on. And, you know, I just moved on to writing the next book. Um, but after that reception at home, about 500 people came out and it didn't hurt that I was a financial analyst at that time for the city of Rockford and I knew the mayor well and so if you you know can put in your press release that the mayor is going to be there and that state representatives are going to be there because I knew him because he used to be a legal attorney that I would work back and forth with on some of the properties that we dealt with in the community but that really got the word out with all the TV stations and the newspaper and people came out So when we got home that Sunday night, um, my husband and I had taken a vacation day that next day on Monday, just knowing how tired we were going to be from that whole weekend and putting on this reception. And so he had what I tell people is another big bright idea. 
So he said to me, out of the blue, you know, no conversation, he said, well, you know when you go back to work on Tuesday, you're going to have to give your two-week notice. And I thought, oh, he's really lost it. <laughs> he's really snapped for sure now. You know, you want me to give up my paycheck that I get every two weeks for what if and maybe, you know. And so I just couldn't see it. I'm not the risk taker in the household. We were not wealthy and earning tons and tons of money by any stretch of the imagination, but we could pay our bills on time. We could save a little for rainy day, and we could certainly save for retirement. And to me, that was a comfortable life, and I didn't need any more than that, but I wanted to know that security was there. Um, but he said to me, you know, I understand that. I know you feel that way, but I think if you do not give this 100% of your time, you're not going to be successful with it. You've got to give your job up. And so I will say two things to you. I went to, job, went to that job on Tuesday. I gave my resignation that day, and I've been doing this full time since November 1996, and this is the man who pushed me and supported me and has been there. So. So this is a, it's a special year because I um, started writing um, in April 95. So last month, um, I had been writing for 20 years. I turned 50 last month, and we are celebrating our 25th anniversary this September. So. So life, life has been good. It's been more than I ever could have imagined. And this is my 22nd national book tour, and Will has traveled on all 22 of those. So I'm just grateful for him. So thank you. I love you. So that's kind of me and who I am, just to give you an idea of kind of how I started and, you know, why I started. So now, um, if you have any questions, um, let me ask you this, too, and, and apologize. Uh, somehow, you know, there's probably some disconnect. Who didn't, wasn't able to get a book? Um, we really, really apologize for that. We've got to figure out something um, to do to get those books to you, you know, so that I can still sign them. Um, so if you want to um, either pay me or send the money to me, I can make sure that it gets to you because I just don't want it. I don't want you to have taken out this kind of time um, to come out. You know, it was beyond my control, but I just want to make sure that you get books. So please, if you did not get one, still get in the line and we'll just figure out what to do to, to get it to you as soon as we can. For Q&A, mm -hmm. we would like for you to line up because we're podcasting this, so if you can line up if you have questions, we would appreciate it. Good afternoon. Hello, how are you? I am fine, and thank you so much for coming because you are my very favorite. Oh, um, thank you I, very much for that. I <laughs> wow. I, I do believe that, that people are called for a purpose, but I also kind of think that you, sometime later in life you find that you have another purpose. Yes. Um, I just retired three years ago from teaching for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always loved to write, and so I write, but I just don't know what I'm going to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, and when you talked about self-publishing, that, that sounded good, but I want to know, is there another way that you can go through it? Because I don't have that kind of money. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, do you, are there people who, who can show you how to do it on a limited budget? Or, because I, I do like to write, and I write all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm writing a, a book for teachers right now. It's a, okay. a how-to book, you know, how to learn how to enjoy the things you do and how to get them done. Yes. But, um, and not be stressed. 
Yes. Okay, so. Well, there are there are now, I mean, it's a, a lot different now than, you know, 20 plus years ago, because now you have self-publishing companies. I mean, there are lots of different ones online that you can research, but you also want to not only research those, you also want to Google the name of the company and put the word scam in there, you know, so if something comes up, you know, that will be a red flag, you know, to stay away from them. And then I would also look at some of the books that they've published and those authors' names and contact them. I mean, most authors are going to have a website where you'd be able to do that so that you can see what their experience was. Um, sometimes the packages can be as low as $500 up to $1,500, you know, 2000 where they'll do everything for you. And usually it's print on demand. They'll print the, print the books as you need them. But that's just a good way to do it without having to, say, start your own business and really put you know, thousands of dollars, you know, much more than, you know, you're saying that you want to do or can do. But there's definitely a way to do it. And then, of course, now, you know, we have this whole new trend of ebooks. you know, that right. has been going on for a number of years now. But now it's, it's really at an all-time high. You know, so many people read that way. You can publish that way for nothing. I mean, you pay your jacket designer, you know, get the book typeset and put in the format that it needs to be in so that it's accessible, um, you know, for ebooks. Um, or e-readers, I should say, whether you're talking about Kindle, Nook, or iPad, or Kobo, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but that's also an option for you as well. Okay, well, thank mm-hmm. you so much. And I don't want to hog this, but I just want to know, uh-huh. where do you get your ideas <laughs> about how to write what you write when you come through all those books? Because I'm, I'm just fascinated mm-hmm. by your books, and I've read all of them in the Curtis Black series. I'm like, how does she do this? Where does she... Where does she know where to go next? <laughs> well, you know, again, with the, you know, half of them are the Curtis Black stories and the other half are standalone titles, but they're always real life social issues. So with the church one, again, I've been in church all my life. And so what's interesting is, is the 10 books that are outside of the series, I have to do lots of research about. With the Curtis Black books, I never have to do research. I mean, I literally just write. You know, if there's, you know, some issue other than the church, you know, I may have to do a little research on that. But for the most part, if it's church business and what's going on with that, I just, I know that, you know, pretty much like the back of my hand. Um, But as far as all the other issues that I write about in the other books, I have an old notebook that I've had for years now, and I continually add different topics to it. I may see something happen. You know, it may be in the newspaper. It might just be in national news in general. It might have happened in our family. It could have happened to a friend, a neighbor, whoever. And I'll take that topic and think, what if? You know, it's never what happened to the person, but I'll take it in a different direction in my mind. And then when I'm ready to start writing the next book, I go through that notebook and I just read down each topic and one will just hit me, you know, just stand out more than others. I'll say, God, that's it. So my book that I just turned in, Um, on April 30th called Best Friends Forever, which will be out in January. It's about a woman who's dealing with breast cancer because I had not done that. Um, But since in all these years, I've had not only um, a maternal aunt, but also a cousin who has dealt with it. And of course, you know, with me and and my drama, there's always a twist to it. Um, But as she fills the lump and before she even goes to the doctor, her husband comes home at 5 a.m. in the morning for the very first time. And all this happens in a matter of one weekend. And that does not change his mind about the other woman and what he wants to do. So thank you so very much. Yeah. Hello. So I have been reading your book since 2001. I was Mm -hmm. in the 11th grade. Um, A neighbor of mine happened to have your book on her nightstand. And believe it or not, this book was collecting dust. I needed something to read. I just finished Eric Jerome Dickey. Mm -hmm. And I was like, let me see that book. Had no idea who you were, what the book was about. 
and like, what is this, 15 years later, yeah. I'm still like hooked. Oh my gosh. And so, <laughs> I, I appreciate um, One in a Million, all those other books that you've done where you've talked about drugs and all those things, but Curtis Black always comes back to me. So mm-hmm. I guess my question is, when will they learn? Because I, I find that like, when I read <laughs> Casting the First Stone, before all the other books came out, I was like, oh, okay, this was a nice book. It was a great ending. And then Mariah, and then Charlotte. Yes. And, and so I'm like, do you, do, you see, do you see them learning soon? Like, do you see Charlotte stopping? Do you see Alicia stopping? Like, like, <laughs> when will they get it? Will they ever get it? Well, you know, well, Curtis has. Curtis has right. really worked hard and yes. turned his life around. Yes. I mean, I think that. nobody ever thought he could or would have expected right. it. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes I even get the email messages or readers at events saying, when is the old Curtis coming back? And I think, well, <laughs> shame on you if you want to see him go back to being the way he is, you know, um, because he was such a bad boy. But he really has learned a lot of lessons. And, of course, it's because of a lot of the trials and consequences that he's dealt with. Um, but with Charlotte, she's still still has a lot to learn and so does Alicia and they just represent a number of people millions of people who they may be 50 60 years old before they finally say enough is enough I'm going to start doing the right thing so thank you thank you hello uh-huh I have two things to say. First of all, can you stop bringing your books out when I'm in the middle of my class? <laughs> now I have to read this book and my textbook. And it's just, can you just like wait? I know. Just a little while, huh? <laughs> and second of all, my favorite book, I, I think I read everything that you have. I was talking to a young lady here, and she's like, I haven't read this, I haven't read that. My favorite book that you wrote was One in a Million. Oh, my gosh. The last time you were here, you said that they were going to make a movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what happened with that? It was just kind of fizzled a little bit because it was in conjunction when the producers optioned it. It was in, conjun- in conjunction with Lifetime um, for television. And so when they first moved on, you know, the deal was done. We signed the, the um, agreement. Um, then they moved forward with getting the script written. And so they wrote it, and then they came. Lifetime came back to the producers and said they wanted it written a little differently. Um, first they were kind of wanting to gear it more toward comedy drama versus drama which you know made me a little nervous because I don't write comedy at all that's just not what my stories are about and you know that's not really what I would want to see with any of them but they still tried to you know incorporate a little bit of that and they came back and then they still I think wanted more changes and so then the producers decided maybe we should just try to take this to the big screen and so you know they kept renewing it and going forward but so far nothing has happened because obviously now they're going to need a lot more funding um, you know, so that's what happens a lot of times with options, unfortunately. What I will say, and I, and I can't give like the detailed detail, but over this last month, um, my attorneys have been in, in big talks. I mean, talks to where, you know, it's moving along very, very well um, for an actual television series for the Reverend Curtis Black series. So, uh, so uh, I tried not to say that. I didn't want to say that. I didn't. 
but it's hard not to. But I mean, I, I am. I'm excited. But now I'm, I'm saying it to you. I've only said it to one other group, and that's just because if you are a praying person, I hope that you'll pray that, you know, that not only it happens, but it happens in the way we all will want to see it. So, but yeah. One more thing. What are you going to do with Dylan? Dylan just seems to ride out to the sunset. I want Dylan to well, Dylan's, Dylan's back in 2016 for the next Curtis Black book, yeah. <laughs> yep, he's back. So I've already, as a matter of fact, I sent the synopsis, oh God, that must have been January or February or so, um, to my editor. Um, and so you'll have to get through this book, The Ultimate Betrayal, and so I, I, mean, I can't tell you a whole lot about it. But what I will say is this. Things turn out in a way where Alicia and Dylan become the close brother and sister that you never thought they could be. And so they move on, and it's almost like brother and sister against the world. That's all I can tell you. So, yeah. Well, actually, I, I stood in line, but you just answered my question. I wanted to ask about the Curtis Black series becoming a movie or a TV series. Mm-hmm. Because my girlfriend and I, we've always, we like picturing who would play Curtis Black. <laughs> she has him. Really? We're like picturing, we're, we have ideas of people for the cast, so we're really excited to and hear And is that, that who you thought as well for Curtis? Is that who you thought was Dennis as well? Dennis Hayes. And who did you think? Who did I think? Mm-hmm. Well, you I kind of agree with her. I like okay, the voice. Okay, yeah. So. I have to tell you one other thing. When your husband walked in the door, I told my girlfriend, I said, that's Curtis Black. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, honestly, I said, I said, that's Curtis Black. You know, it is, it's the thing, though, because I've had different people say that, and especially back when I first wrote Casting the First Stone, it's like the description, if you really look at the Casting the First Stone description and, you know, Will now, and especially back then, you could say, wow, that's who Kim thinks is a, a handsome, good-looking man. She's just describing her husband. That, because we all have certain attractions to people. I've had people say to me that it should be Terrence Howard because they see the person as Terrence Howard. That's not how I see him. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I just want to say one more thing. Well, and this is the, well, I'll tell you the different ones. Will, Will's favorite has always been Idris Elba, but. Oh, yeah. So, see, that's a plus. My favorite has always been Blair Underwood. That's who I've always seen as the Reverend Curtis Black. So, yeah. <laughs> One other thing, I just want to thank you, thank you, thank you for your books. I'm one of those people who can't put them down, and when I start reading a book, I stay up all night, and then I'm angry with myself because I finished it so Oh soon. my gosh, thank you so very, thank very you. much. I appreciate that. Hi. Hello. First, I want to um, say thank you, and it has really been worth the drive from Virginia. I'm the one that talked to Oh, you that today. you sent me the note. Oh, thank you so much for coming. I so yes, appreciate yes. that. I really miss it. I really needed the inspiration and you gave it to me today. So oh, I'm, wonderful. I'm really glad. 
And um, I'm, I'm a person, too. I'm, you're 50. I'm 63. Mm-hmm. And I'm on, like, my fourth career now, I, I tell people, because <laughs> I started teaching, and then it was the whole corporate America thing. And uh, t- English was my thing. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to write a book. So now I've done the self-publishing. That's the route I went because I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm four books in. Um, but still, I don't know if that's really what I want to do. <laughs> You know, okay. It started as a novel, but by the time the editor finished with it, 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 it down to a novella. Okay. Right? But okay. that's okay, because yeah, that's going to help is. me with the trilogy that I'm trying to finish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, but I'm listening to you. I'm kind of past the, I'm at the marketing plan thing when I heard you say, which I really didn't do, because I, I don't think I've taken it as seriously as I'm going to when I leave here, because mm-hmm. you have really inspired mm-hmm. me. But um, you guys did 3,000 copies uh, the first of printing. the first. You took mm-hmm. that plunge and just decided that you really were going to push 3,000 copies. Yes, yes. And, and you did that. Yes. And it was, a, you know, I think it was a little was. different, um, know you know, back then in the 96, 97 range. And the big, big blessing for me and all of the writers that started back then as in African-American writers is there were about 300 independent black bookstores around the country. I mean, they sold, sold, sold hundreds and into the thousands of copies of our books um, all year long. And so I was looking at that. I knew that I would contact all 300 of them. Then, of course, was hoping to get it into libraries. And then, of course, was hoping to get it with Barnes and Noble. And, of course, Borders and Waldens were still open then, Books a Million, you know, the list goes on in terms of the major chains that were out there. So I kind of looked at that, you know, if you could just get 20, 30, 40, 50 in each one, you know, that was kind of in the back of my mind, you know, not really knowing how it was going to turn out, but just knew I had to start out with something because I wanted it to be available. Um, and so it just started moving along, and it started moving because um, there was a, a woman by the name of Emma Rogers at a black bookstore called Black Images in Dallas, Texas. Um, it was one of the most popular ones in the country. If you were in the industry, you would have known who Emma was. And then Clara Villarosa was in Denver with Human, um, and then eventually it became a store that was in New York in the Harlem area. Um, but I sent out the books. I com- wrote a letter and just said, you know, hi, my name is Kimberly Lawson Roby. You may not have heard of me. I have this new book behind closed doors can you please read it for me can you give me feedback if you enjoy it will you order copies for your store will you recommend it to your customers and that's exactly what they did after all these years um, when I go back to Dallas even though Emma's store has closed and sadly so many of the black bookstores had to close um, but I'll go back and somebody will remind me that they started reading my book when they went into Emma's store and Emma had just taken it on and she called behind closed doors her baby for that year and they said that they had gone up to the counter and she had this customer reader had her books and she placed her books on the counter and Emma said you don't want those this is the book that you want you know and I thought you couldn't even buy that kind of publicity or marketing you know that kind of support um, you know that I'm indebted to her forever and then she took it to another level and started calling the owners of the other black bookstores that I had contacted saying hey you, you need to get this book you need to start recommending this and you know getting it out there and of course that's how I ended up on that bestseller list then of course Barnes and Noble and all the chains really, you know, kind of got involved at that point, and it just went from there. So that's why it's a little different, but that's why I really needed at least that many copies to start with. Do you feel, and then I'm going to go, do you feel that, um, well, when you first started, creative control, 
did you feel like you lost any of that when you went with the signed with a publishing house? Mm-mm, I did not, and I. But I'm just blessed because that's not always the case. I mean, you will hear something different, you know, sometimes from other authors that you may talk to. But I have just been blessed that with all three of my publishers. I started out um, with Kensington, even when I was working back and forth with Paul Coates with Black Classic Press here, and then um, moved on to Harper Collins for I think maybe eight books, and then now I've been at Grand Central Publishing with Hachette um, since 2009. Um, I've always had a publisher, editor, editor-in-chief, and the people who work in the other departments that allow me to be a part of the team versus it being publisher and author. I think it's partly because of the business background that I have, and it's partly because I still work just as hard or harder now than I did even back then. You know, I don't see it as the publisher is responsible for getting the word out. You know, they have their responsibility and they do their end of it. But it's really up to me to have that relationship with all of you and, and to try to communicate with you and, um, you know, get the word out and talk about my books with you and all of that. I mean, there's a whole lot more that goes into it um, for me. And a lot of writers don't like to hear this. But writing is really 20%. 80% is getting out and, and interacting and getting the word out to your, your people who will pick up your book and read it for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks so much and all the best to you. I, 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 Hello. I'm kind of behind the eight ball. Everybody's been with you for so long. I've only been with you for five years. And mm-hmm. I came across one of your books only because of your it, Kimberly Lawson Roby. And my maiden name was Lawson. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Uh, and it just, it, that's what captured me. And I was never a reader. But then when I read the first book, and then I realized I captured it in the middle of the series. And I said, and I looked at the listings. And I said, well, I need, I need to go back. Uh-huh. I, I owned a, um, a child care center. And so we had people that would come in, and we would kind of all break together. And, we had, and so we would literally, me and my entire staff, while the people were watching the babies while they were napping, yes. I'd have teachers with blankets and pillows, and they made me be the reader. Yes. So the hour, I was reading the book while all nine of my staff members laid there doing their, oh their lunch God. time. So we all caught up on your, your series together. So. Since, you know, so that's how we came to, to know you. So, but I'm enjoying your book. And I've gotten on the frequent, you know, so now with the day it comes out, I get all of your books and I love them. Oh, and my thank question you. for you is, um, as a new writer myself, <laughs> mm-hmm. my book just went to layout today, actually. Wonderful. Um, Congratulations. What, what would you recommend for me? Because they're looking at it um, in the next 30 days, being at print and ready to kind of go, mm-hmm. what would you suggest for me as my next step or my first step to getting it kind of out there? Right. Well, you have you um, created a website? There, that comes along with it. The, along I with, with it, the, where they do all of that, and set that up for it. you. Yes, so that's yes, the big yes. thing, you know. Make sure you have a sign-up box for people to sign up for a newsletter. And so, mm-hmm. you know, periodically you should send something out just about your book. It could be, you know, for you since you're starting out, the initial chapters. You know, it could be, you know, some contest that you're offering, you know, but just something where you start building a relationship with readers and talking with them, you know, even on a personal basis. Um, Facebook and Twitter um, and Instagram have just created a whole new world, you know, for us as writers because when we can't get to certain cities, that doesn't stop me from really talking with my readers. I mean, daily, I'm talking to more than one reader. That's, that's every day of my life, you know, throughout the week. It doesn't matter, even if it's a holiday, you know, that's usually happening. Um, and so really, you know, try to build a presence that way, um, you know, online. And it really is about building 
you know, your career, one reader at a time, one book club at a time. Try to do as many events as you can, whether it be in libraries. If you get speaking engagements, do them for free. You know, do whatever you need to do to, to really get the word out about your book. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Yes, I want to thank you for coming. Uh, thank first, you. Your, the, my name is Travis. Uh, your, the first book that I read was Casting the First Stone. Mm -hmm. I read that one time, then I read it again, and I was able to get that book for, I think, like 50 cents here at the library. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And I was able to read it two times, and I really enjoyed your book. But my question was... Um, when you started out, did you have people who laughed at you, and uh, did you have naysayers, doubters, people who said that you couldn't uh, do it? You couldn't right? do it. And my other question to you was, have you talked to Oprah? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question, and both are. Um, I'll answer your first one first is, uh, yes, you know, definitely naysayers, even if they didn't say it to my face, you know, and, and the reason I worded that way is because I had people who were close to me, you know, people who had been friends that I had known for years. And I just so happened to say to a couple of people, you know, I'm writing the book. And the look on their face was like, wow, really, you know, or that's nice, you know. And I knew then that I couldn't talk about that anymore because that was just from that little moment, it was discouraging me. It was making me feel like, you know what, they're right. You know, who am I to think that I can write a book? I mean, all kinds of negative things go through your mind. It's amazing how one or two people with just a facial expression can bring you down and put you in another place. Um, and so um, I did. I stopped talking about it. And so really when it was all said and done, my books were back, those 3,000 copies from the printer, and I was showing it to different people. They had no idea because it was just better for me to keep it that way. And I stayed with the positive. So with Will, when I made up my mind to write the book, I'd come home from work, get off at 5, get home, and I was saying I would write from 6 to 10, sometimes 11 o'clock even at night. Will just took over every responsibility in the house when he got off work. That He made sure we had food, anything else. If he was working really long hours, then my mom would say, I'm going to come get the clothes and wash them for you guys, or I'm going to bring food so you guys have it for the next two or three days. My brothers are six and eight years younger. They would just call me up like right after work and say, just making sure you're getting ready to write. I mean, so I kept, made sure it was that circle of people to get through that seven-month process. So make sure people support you. Mm -hmm. And um, have you ever... And Oprah. And, oh, the question about Oprah. And one more thing. Have mm -hmm. you ever thought about, like, having like an annual writers conference for like people like myself I, ha I have and it's kind of interesting that you would say that because somebody just sent me a note on Facebook and it was just in the last few days you know saying you know would I ever think about doing that and I think it would be nice when I just need to I guess set up you know, either go to a select group of cities, you know, try to maybe have one common city, maybe for a weekend. And I do think it would be really good to do that because learning the craft of writing is really important. And so, you know, we could bring in people to do that. But the whole business side of publishing and the marketing and the promotion, I've done that enough now that I do think that, you know, I could probably give some tips, um, you know, so I really would like to consider, um, you know, consider doing that. Maybe you could um, like start a foundation. So that when you long and gone, it could be still Somebody could still kind of carry it on. Yeah, it is. It is time for me to start thinking about that. That's because I said I was 50. He's pushing me out the door. <laughs> you got, no, you do. You got you to gotta think ahead, though. But you're right. You know, and, and that would be, you know, a hope to, 
you know, leave some sort of legacy, you know, that, you know, that I could be proud of, that my family could be proud of, and that it would be something that would help um, aspiring writers along the way. So, no, that's a really great idea. It Can is. Going to talk about Oprah now. Okay, yes, Oprah. So my Oprah story is, well, for one thing, uh, one of my best friends and I went to see the show, um, you know, maybe three or four years or so before um, her show actually ended, um, before that last one aired. And so that was an experience. And my girlfriend was the bold one when it was the end of the show and she was getting ready, Oprah was getting ready to go back and get changed because they just, they do two or three shows in one day when they're taping. And so she's like, Oprah, my girlfriend and I have been trying to get on the show for all these years and we finally, you know, we're able to do it. And, you know, we're just glad to meet you and be here. And then she's like, oh my gosh, how long? And so Lori was telling her, you know, how long it had been. And so she said to one of the producers and she said, I'm, I'm going to go back. I got to do something before I change, but bring these two ladies back so she we can get a photo together and so we have our photo with Oprah and that was just nice and then as it turned out um, there's the the big industry publishing industry um, convention if some of you follow me on Facebook you know I was at Book Expo America um, last week in New York Um, and so we were there and so when it used to be in Chicago Will and I would go all the time because we live in Illinois so it's just an hour and a half drive in so we'd be there but this one particular year the Blackboard list, the bestseller list that used to be in Essence magazine, they would give out awards on that Sunday morning at the breakfast. But that would also be the same breakfast that everybody went to because they would have that final panel. And it just so happens that, what's the music producer? I must be tired because there's no, Quincy Jones. I would never forget Quincy Jones. I just had a brain freeze. But Quincy Jones was one of the panelists. And so we had been in the green room with him. And he, which I will have to say this, if you've never met him and that's probably the only time we'll ever see him. But he sat and he talked to Will just like nobody else was in the room the whole time. And I thought, you know, it's just nice to see, you know, somebody that down to earth. You know, that's the one thing I'll always remember about him. But because he and Oprah are such good friends, Oprah decided to attend that particular breakfast. And I had gotten book of the year for casting the first stone. And so I went up and I was accepting it. It was in May 2001, which was six months before my mom passed away. And so... Oprah being in the room, and there's like a thousand people in that breakfast. I mean, that's how that breakfast is set up. And as it would turn out, because I talked about my mom, and, you know, she was in that stage where I knew that she was dying, and, you know, how she had supported me and all that she wanted me, and it was just kind of an emotional thing for me to talk about, and I was really dedicating the award to her. So after the breakfast was over, just went over, and I just went over because I just wanted to be able to shake Oprah's hand, and she said to me, you know, I will be praying for your mom, you know, and so I'll, I'll never forget that moment just because she remembered that of everything that I talked about in my acceptance speech, that was the important thing to me, and that was the one thing that she remembered, so. I would think if she got this big old own network, maybe she <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, two things. Uh, I want to thank you so much for your contributions to the literary world. Uh, thank second you. thing, I want to let you know that I am the real Curtis Black. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, my given name, yeah, my given name is Curtis Black. And you have no idea how many times people come up to me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Funny, I get, that, I get asked that question all of the time. So I wanted to ask you, what inspired you and where did you get the name from? 
from Curtis. You know, I, he was just Curtis Black to me in my mind. I don't know a Curtis Black, except now I know you, you know. <laughs> That's it. Um, but he was just Curtis Black. And, uh, you know, for me, there's no rhyme or reason, but I see my characters in my mind before I ever start even outlining the chapters and writing the actual chapters. But that's who he was. And so even now with my characters, a lot of times folks will ask me, you know, how do you come up with the names for anybody, whether it's a child or it's a woman, it's a teenager, it's, you know, a man, whoever it is. And so I'll just tell you the story real, real, real quick. Years ago, I was in the grocery store. And so I was in this section with books and there was this huge baby book section. And I was like, wow, this is interesting because it told you the kind of names that meant certain things, you know, somebody who was real conscientious, somebody who was sexy, somebody who was real intelligent, somebody who was sports-minded, somebody who, you know, was a, it was a funny kind of name, names that uh, were the top names in 1930, you know, 31, you know, 40, you know, all that. So anyway, long story short, I take the, put the book in the cart while I'm grocery shopping. So I was like, this will be nice to have. And so I get in the line, and when the checkout clerk scans it and puts it across, she said, oh, congratulations, you know, <laughs> because she sees this baby book, and it's like, no, I'm not having a baby. That's not what this is for. But I still use that today. And, um, but, yeah, he was just Curtis Black to me for some reason. So because of you, I get a lot of interest. Oh, I'm sure you do. at church, you know. I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, they're probably looking at you real funny. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they are. So I just wanted to say thank Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I have a couple of announcements. First of all, let's give Kimberly a Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 